Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 14th of March, 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to be joined by David Scott, bringing us northern exposure from north of the border and Katie Joe. Right. Uh, let's get straight on then with uh, this. Uh, Sandy Toxvig tweeting out this morning, uh, since Russia's invasion, 22,000 Ukrainians have applied for UK visas, but just over 1,000 have been issued. I'm ready to house a Ukrainian family, as are many British people. We want to help, uh, but we need the UK government to take action now uh, and welcome refugees with open arms. And of course, that's exactly what's happening. So Michael Gove on uh, the BBC yesterday announced that today uh, the uh, UK government would be launching a new website, uh, which they are going to do. Um, and, but actually, the press release for it said that uh, about 4,000 visas have been issued so far, not 1,000, as Sandy Toxic is saying, um, and tens of thousands more to be expected. Uh, and so uh, the Homes for Ukraine program is going to allow individuals, that's you and me, uh, charities, community groups, businesses across uh, the UK, according to the press release, to offer a room or home rent-free uh, to Ukrainians who are... Uh, escaping the war is the claim. Um, and uh, well, the, the price for that or the cost for that, as far as uh, the government is concerned, is £350 a month to each of the uh, families that is uh, uh, hosting somebody from Ukraine um, with other uh, additional payments from the government if you happen to be hosting someone that's uh, of school age and needs extra financial support to be, uh, you know, to, to get started into school. Um, so, uh, they're expecting lots and lots and lots of people to uh, uh, get involved in this. And of course, in the meantime, they're filling the headlines full of extremely emotional material yeah. in order to drive uh, this uh, policy. A, a massive effort just to get everybody to believe that anyone and everyone that comes from Ukraine is, is good. Um, of course, we saw this happening in a way with Syria. Notice also that children in the Syrian case were coming over here and disappearing. Uh, but now we're offering uh, cancer treatment to Ukrainian children. And uh, if the children need that treatment, then of course they should get it. But of course, um, if you're an elderly person in UK or a younger person who needs cancer treatment, you have not been able to get into the NHS. So we've got a government totally duplicitous, dual standards. But if it's to do with Ukraine, top of the ladder, these people come straight in. Who are they? What will be the background checks on these people? Uh, David, have you got any thoughts on this? Well, I was noticing that Nicola Sturgeon was uh, saying that she was she would be quite happy if, if there was no one else uh, to, to take in the Ukrainian. And this this brought back memories of uh, her happiness at the prospect of taking in a Syrian refugee family into her own home, which was all over the Scottish press in uh, 2015. And... Um, Surprising thing, Mike, that never happened. No, indeed. Well, uh, let's move on then to Dominic Rabb, who's uh, over in The Hague today. Uh, so let's have a look at what he's doing. He's there to uh, support bringing Putin to The Hague. So this is the effort. Uh, they want to bring, uh, not specifically Putin, but anybody that's uh, operating on the Russian side here uh, in Ukraine to The Hague uh, under international criminal court charges. Um, so he's visiting the International Criminal Court. Uh, he'll, this will inform how the international community can best support uh, the court uh, as he vows to bring together a broad coalition of countries 
uh, which also have the capability to help an investigation. Um, so there was a virtual meeting last week, apparently, with Ukraine's prosecutor general uh, and uh, also Suella Braverman, uh, the attorney general, the UK attorney general was involved in that to discuss uh, what help the country needs to collect and preserve evidence of war crimes. Uh, this is the latest in a series of efforts, according to the UK government, to provide Ukraine with economic, diplomatic, humanitarian and defensive support alongside lethal aid. Uh, and it's also investigating how to stop Russian oligarchs uh, using the legal system in the UK to intimidate and silence their critics. So let's see what Dominic Rabb had to say. Tomorrow I'll go, that's today, to The Hague to offer the ICC UK technical support in bringing those responsible for war crimes in Ukraine to justice, including support uh, with the immediate priority of gathering and preserving evidence. Uh, Russian commanders carrying out war crimes should know they cannot act with impunity, like Radovan Karadich and Charles Taylor before them. Their actions risk landing them in a jail cell. Um, and so uh, separate from this, he is also over there to meet ambassadors from a range of countries to build a coalition able to provide extra assistance and cooperation to the Office of the Prosecutor to investigate war crimes in uh, Ukraine. So he's attempting to get uh, consensus. Uh, so apparently the UK, we, we may well not have appreciated this, but the UK has a long history of supporting uh, war crimes prosecutions. Well, the UK also has a long history of supporting war crimes. Uh, we may, may mention Tony Blair at this point, for example. Well, I think we should, uh, we should and, shouldn't we? Because how many people died? Hundreds of thousands, millions as a result of a lie. Okay, and uh, and the wonderful Svella Braverman, here she is. Uh, she is, uh, of course, the attorney, attorney general, sorry. Uh, she signed a statement with Ukraine's prosecutor general, which reaffirms the UK support for holding Russia to account for war crimes committed in Ukraine. Uh, and uh, so uh, that's, well, what, what more can you say? This is, uh, it's a setup. It's a setup, Mike. Um, my question is, does Dominic Rabb watch the BBC? Because sometimes the BBC can produce very interesting material. Let's jump back to 2014 and see what um, uh, Gabrielle Gatehouse was saying for BBC Newsnight about the danger of Nazi extremists in Ukraine. In place of the defiant speeches, the sombre strains of Beethoven now ring out over Independence Square. This revolution is moving into a new phase. But amidst the flowers and the children's tributes, flashes of something more sinister. Groups of armed men strut through the square with dubious iconography. That yellow armband is a Volksangel, a German symbol used by several SS divisions during the Second World War. Far-right graffiti is appearing, daubed on the walls of the city. The people who brought down the government were overwhelmingly ordinary Ukrainians, students and doctors, workers and even families, people who simply refused to back down. But the most organised, and perhaps the most effective, were a small number of far-right groups. When it came to confrontations with the police, it was often the nationalists who were the loudest and the most violent. 
A group calling itself the Right Sector is perhaps the largest. Its members can be seen marching around Kiev in columns of about a dozen. Mostly they carry baseball bats. Sometimes they carry guns. We met these men posing for pictures outside the burnt-out remains of what was once their headquarters. I asked them about their political beliefs. What about the East, I asked. What about Crimea, where many Ukrainians feel close historical ties to Russia? So Ukraine just for Ukrainians? Yeah, the young man for, for um, uh, people who didn't pick up on that, one, one nation, one nation, one people, one country. And uh, if you didn't like it, if you're Russian-speaking Ukrainian, you were kind of out, you are going to be pushed out, not like Hitler, of course. It was going to be done gradually. And that's interesting because this is 2014 with the BBC warning of the power of the extreme right in Ukraine. And now suddenly Nazis are a good thing as long as they're in Ukraine, Mike. I'm not sure how much more cynical we should get about it, but we're only giving you part of that uh, news night, of course. Let's just have another look, uh, another little clip from the same, uh, the same new news night episode so that we can see how the BBC interpreted the power of these groups within government. Let's see what they say. The fervor of the revolution is beginning to fade now. People are starting to move on. But it's clear that it was the radical groups who kept up the pressure on Viktor Yanukovych, and many of them feel that this really is their victory. The question is, how much power will that give the far right in the new Ukraine? Ukrainian politics is in a state of flux. Different groups are jostling for position. Left-wing activists have also taken control of some government buildings, but it's the right that appears to be coming out on top. Uh, when the fighting started, they started to attract more and more young people, and, and then not only young people, but all kinds of, of persons, where they were marginal, regarded as marginal. Previously, now they are seen as being at the core of the protest and therefore at the core of those who now have a popular legitimacy to make decisions. With their anti-Russian rhetoric, events in Crimea will almost certainly play into the hands of the nationalists. No one knows exactly how strong they are in terms of numbers, but the influence of the far right in Ukraine is growing. So very clear there, Mike, by the BBC that the power of the far right was growing in 2014. 
and they're calmly stating that was the power that could manipulate what the legislators, what the people in government uh, were going to do. So is it any wonder that we've now got to the situation we've we, we've got to, but all of a sudden the BBC doesn't want to talk about the Azov battalions or the far right. Right. So uh, that was 2014. Move forward to 2019 then, and 50 uh, US Congress members uh, were writing a cross-partisan, cross-party uh, open letter uh, condemning Ukrainian legislation, which they said, quotes, glorifies Nazi collaborators uh, and therefore goes further than Poland's laws and rhetoric about the Holocaust. So they were uh, basically saying here, uh, it is particularly troubling that much of the Nazi glorification in Ukraine is government supported. That's what it said in the open letter. So, you know, clearly they didn't go away after 2014. Uh, that's recognized by the BBC at that stage, is recognized by uh, members of Congress in the United States by 2019. But here we are in 2022, and apparently they're suddenly uh, the best things in sliced bread. Yes, so a lot of questions that need to be asked. David? Um, lots of questions. Um, you, you are absolutely getting elements of, of Nazi ideology there, and Volkheimreich and Führer was basically coming forward. Um, but also the, in the last photograph, you had someone with a, um, an Antifa far left black and red flag walking down beside them. So it's it's perhaps more more confusing in terms of ideology. Um, the, the, the Nazism was was three things. It was socialism, it was extreme nationalism, and it was it was Darwinism. It was applied biology, as Hess said. Um, I, I suspect what you've got in, in the Ukraine is partly that and partly something much more confused where you have a history of uh, the Holodomor and oppression from uh, the Russian centre and um, grasping at whatever um, motifs they've got to kind of establish themselves. Unfortunately, these motifs uh, come with a very dark past and a, and a, and a very violent ideology. It's, um, it's extremely concerning uh, that, that all of this is being encouraged now on such um, platforms as Facebook. Uh, yes, indeed. Yes. And how serious is the propaganda in UK? Well, of course, it's now penetrated the whole country. We have swathes of people who think they know what's going on in Ukraine because of the BBC and wider media propaganda, but no real detail. You can't even escape when you walk the dogs. Let's have a look at this uh, little image, a very big uh, uh, Ukrainian uh, flag in the local woods with a big heart on it. Uh, the sun was behind it. If it appears to be glowing, it's not a TV screen. This is this is a flag. Uh, but of course, the average person has no idea what the true situation is in Ukraine because the BBC and the Western media are not reporting it. And let's remind ourselves that the BBC's political charity, BBC Media Action, is paid by the UK and US governments to restructure, which it has done, Ukrainian state media. So do we know the truth from the BBC? Probably not. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, David, negotiations do seem to be taking place between Russia and Ukraine, but it's being facilitated by Israel. This has been talked about now for about a week and a half, and it seems to be getting closer. The Russians have indicated that they are 
uh, looking positively on this. Uh, they're saying that they can't really negotiate with the Ukrainians in Ukraine or, or Russia or Belarus. It's all too, it's all too near to the conflict zone. Um, and uh, Israel, no, no less, have put, them forward, put themselves forward as honest broker. Now, there's a huge um, Russian emigre population, Jewish, uh, Russian Jewish population in Israel, and a huge Ukrainian Jewish population in Israel. So they certainly have uh, a, a, a more of a, a link to the country and more of a link to the, the conflict and the feelings than many other societies so far from. Uh, so far from the Black Sea would actually have. Um, it remains to be seen whether this will be a success and the idea of negotiating in a place full of uh, ancient Russian churches um, and, and links to Christianity and peace will actually be a positive thing uh, or whether the uh, money links between the Israeli government political elite and people in both Russia and Ukraine will get in the way and it will become something a little bit murkier. Yes, indeed. Okay, well, let's uh, move on to uh, this. And uh, here is uh, an interview uh, with Scott Ritter. Uh, and uh, this is the headline here on the uh, Odyssey video is former UN weapons inspector on, in Iraq and US Marine Corps intelligence officer Scott Ritter. We trained the Nazis literally. Um, and of course, he's speaking to uh, George Galloway. Now, um, this I think everybody needs to see this uh, this video. But basically, he's he's uh, uh, he does address the issue of bioweapons in Ukraine. Uh, he talks about Russia's contention, uh, con conscientiousness, sorry, uh, taking care not to harm and injure civilians where it could be avoided, uh, and that they are taking the soft Syrian military approach, uh, but that that could turn against them and so on. So there are a number of really uh, interesting points being made in this. And I do suggest that if uh, people haven't seen it, they should uh, have a look. And the other video that I think everybody needs to have a look at is uh, an episode of uh, Insight that uh, that we produced uh, several years ago now. Uh, myself, Patrick Henningsen, were joined by Alex Thompson and uh, and also Eric Zeus uh, to discuss well Eurasia on the brink. Um, and many people, well, several people now that have, have seen it in the last couple of days have said that it was extremely prescient. Yeah. And uh, so if you haven't seen that video yet, please go and have a look. So where does that take us then? Uh, well, yes, I just wanted to highlight uh, this article on, uh, from, from Eric Zeus. It's entitled uh, Eric Zeus, The Real History Behind Ukraine, Putin, uh, the EU, Gas and Donbass. And I'm not going to go into detail on this, but I just want to suggest that people read that as well. Um, and that brings us on to the issue of Russia's oil and gas revenue windfall. Windfall, sorry, David. Well, this is this is the the thing that no one's really talking about is that um, Russia is doing quite nicely out of the oil price um, spike. Um, the this is Reuters reporting here. They said uh, from the Russian finance ministry. Uh, oil and gas revenues ex exceeded initial plans by 51% uh, in 2021 and are, are higher yet. Um, so this is, this is the, the big issue that you've got 36% of the entire Russian society has been funded now by oil and gas revenues and those have not been cut off. Um, the, the, it, this situation in Europe is that they're so dependent, Italy, Germany and other countries are so dependent on Russian gas, they don't really have an option. Uh, so that money keeps flowing. Uh, the banks that are receiving it are not embargoed, they're not boycotted, and that money keeps flowing into Russia. 
And if it ever gets really serious, one side or the other will end that. Um, and then we'll see economic dislocation and uh, personal suffering in Western Europe in a scale that we literally have not seen since 1945. Uh, well, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because you're talking about uh, reliance on Russian gas and oil in Europe. But uh, of course, the city of London has a reliance on, on Russia as well, because the city of London is, uh, has got many investments in Russian businesses. So Rishi Sunak was uh, attempting to uh, just before the weekend, attempting to encourage them to, what he said was, think very carefully about how they might divest themselves of their Russian investments. He appreciates absolutely, David, that uh, you know when you've got an investment somewhere, it's, it might be difficult to get your money out on a on a basis that's acceptable to you. But he's encouraging them to do so. Uh, but not, it's only encouragement. There's no there's no legal requirement. Uh, so despite the claims of sanctions, uh, the 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 City of London big financial interests um, aren't really suffering too much uh, at this point, at least. And if you look back, Mike, at the history of, for example, the Second World War and the degree to which there were links between uh, major financial institutions, particularly in America, uh, linked to the Bush family and the Nazi, the Nazi regime uh, that went on long into the conflict, uh, the degree to which the, these these interests almost trump the conflict, it can be very surprising. Um, for people with investments with large sums of money in, in Russia at the moment, well, they do have a problem because what are they going to get? They're going to get out in rubles? What, what are you going to do with that? Maybe maybe um, it might do instead of wallpaper, but, but not much else. Um, that's not going to be uh, tradable, fungible funds. Um, so they have interests that go against the stated interest of the Western governments. That's a very difficult one to resolve. Uh, it is. Now, uh, of course, uh, gas and oil prices in the meantime are hurting people in the West. But what about food? Uh, this is the uh, Food and Agricultural Organization of the United Nations. Uh, the importance of Ukraine and the Russian Federation for Global Agricultural Markets uh, and the risks associated with the current conflict is their latest update. Uh, and let's just have a look at a couple of the things they're saying here. FAO simulations gauging the potential impacts of sudden and steep reduction in grain and sunflower seed exports by the two countries, uh, this is Russia and Ukraine, indicate that these shortfalls could only be partially compensated by alternative or origins during the 2022-23 marketing season. Uh, the capacity of many of these origins to boost output and uh, shipments may be limited by high production input costs. Worryingly, the resulting global supply gap could push up international food and feed prices by 8 to 22% above their already elevated levels. If the conflict keeps crude oil prices at high levels and prolongs the two countries' reduced global uh, export participation beyond the 2022-23 season, uh, a considerable supply gap would remain in global grain and sunflower seed markets, even uh, as alternative producing countries expand their output in response to the higher prices. This would keep international prices elevated and above baseline levels. And then they go on to say that globally, if the conflict results in a sudden and prolonged reduction in food exports by Ukraine and the Russian Federation, it could exert additional upward pressure on international food commodity prices to the detriment of economically vulnerable countries. In particular, FAO simulations suggest that under such a scenario, the global number of undernourished people could increase by 8 to 13 million people in 2022-23, with most pronounced increases taking place in the East, uh, sorry, in Asia Pacific, followed by Sub-Saharan Africa 
and the Near East and North Africa. So they are certainly uh, putting the uh, warning out about uh, rising food prices, uh, David. But of course, in the meantime, the British government is busy pursuing a Green New Deal, which means that uh, Britain effectively shuts down its farming industry uh, in favour of uh, woodland and wildflower meadows. We're rewilding. We're taking we're taking farmland that was was made productive by the sweat of the brow of generations of our ancestors, and we're putting it back to nature, and we're letting uh, the beavers and the wild boar have it. Um, and we're also across Europe taking food and uh, making it into petrol uh, for reasons, and uh, leaving the the uh, actual petrol, the hydrocarbons in the ground, for equally unscientific uh, and politically motivated fake reasons. The whole situation is utterly untenable um, and, and quite illogical. Yes. Okay. I'll just add, but nevertheless being pushed, of course, by Prince Charles as one key person. He's heavily into the, uh, into the green agenda. Uh, the World Economic Forum and Klaus Schwab, the UN itself. So very powerful people lobbying on behalf of this utterly mad uh, resetting of everything. Uh, now, on Friday, we were talking about the uh, hospital that was allegedly bombed uh, by Russia uh, in uh, Mariupol. Um, and today, the headlines are full of claims that one of the uh, pre pregnant women involved has uh, sadly passed away. And if that's true, it's utterly tragic. Um, but there are still some questions to ask over this uh, hospital situation. And let's just put this on screen. This is a, a report from September last year. It's in Ukrainian, so let's translate it. Uh, in Mariupol, the antenatal clinic no longer accepts patients. So this was from September last year, basically saying that that hospital uh, was closed for business uh, for antenatal patients. Um, and so the question is, what did happen? Uh, I don't know what the answer is, clearly on uh, Friday, we were pushing forward uh, evidence to suggest that uh, there, there were many, many questions to be asked around this incident. Yeah. Um, and there, the, here is another one that needs to be asked. And isn't it incredible, Mike, that BBC's charity, the Media Action, funded by the British government, funded by the US State Department, funded by Bill and Melinda Gates, has restructured all of Ukrainian media, but apparently we can't get any clear reports out from a war zone. This is extremely um, interesting that whereas you would expect to see report after report coming out from the actual front, uh, we're getting this confused reporting, even though BBC Media Action has restructured all of the Ukrainian government media. Yes. And so if we put this headline on, on screen, uh, the headline is Russia's tactics in Ukraine war mirror Syria testing ground, say experts. Uh, but I would add that, of course, the propaganda war that's going on around Ukraine absolutely mirrors what was happening in Syria uh, with White Helmet style uh, stories appearing in the media, the uh, heart-wrenching stories that are appearing in the media and so on. Um, it, if there's a claim that Russia's tactics are similar uh, in Ukraine to the ones that they have deployed in Syria, well, the same absolutely has to be said of the British media in particular. Um, now, uh, on, on, with respect to the hospitals and actually more with respect to the uh, bioweapons 
uh, allegations. Here's Barbara Wood, Woodward, who's the UK ambassador to the United Nations. Now, fr on Friday, Russia held a Security Council meeting on the issue of the biolabs uh, in Ukraine. Uh, and strangely, just at the moment that they were holding that, uh, the, at least the briefing for the, for the Security Council meeting, um, President Biden decided to have a press conference at exactly that time. So the US media at least weren't covering this particular situation live. But anyway, the Russians called this Security Council meeting. Barbara Woodward wasn't terribly impressed with it. Uh, she said, Russia has today brought into the Security Council a series of wild and completely baseless and irresponsible conspiracy theories. Uh, she said, there's not a shred of credible evidence that Ukraine has a biological weapons program. Uh, and she said that uh, Ukraine is a state party to the Biological and Toxin Weapons Convention in good standing. As we've heard, the research facilities are established facilities set up to deal with public health hazards. So there is an acknowledgement that those facilities exist, at least. Uh, Russia is now putting at threat the global framework for peace and security. The Security Council is responsible for addressing many serious conflicts around the world. We have important work to do. Uh, we do not sit in this chamber to be an audience for Russia's domestic propaganda, uh, and we should not allow Russia to abuse its permanent seat to spread disinformation and lies and pervert the purpose of the Security Council. So that was, uh, uh, David, the position of the, uh, the UK ambassador. Um, I mean, I, I think there are, if, if there's a question of domestic propaganda here, the, the word hypocrisy, once again, has mm. to be uh, brought out with respect to what she said here. Yes, but after, after two years where the government narrative has been proven wrong by the conspiracy theorists on about a weekly basis, um, her choosing the, to call the Russians conspiracy theorists is about as wise as the people who are advocating that uh, British shipbuilding should be increased and what we need to, because of the Russian threat, and what we need to do is appoint a shipbuilding czar. Right. These are these are very inappropriately chosen words. Uh, indeed. Well, we'll be talking about shipbuilding in a second, but before we get to that, uh, Bill Maher. Yes. Now, one of the things, both through COVID and uh, through the current uh, crisis in Ukraine that we've seen, is the old left-wing, right-wing split seems to mean very little. It's truth v. lies, uh, and it's courage versus cowardice. So here we have uh, Bill Maher. Uh, someone very much to the left, someone who's put politics I, I've never agreed with. Um, and yet I find myself increasingly in agreement with what he's saying because he's asking uh, brave questions and um, calling out the hypocrisy. We have a small example here. Okay, but if Putin thought Trump was really that supportive of him, why didn't he invade when Trump was in office? It's at least worth asking that question if you're not locked into one intransigent thought. That's the question. Are you locked into one thought pattern, one world view and you can't think for yourself, or are you able to question? This is, this is what we've got to face. Uh, now, we have here someone who doesn't question very much, Nicola Sturgeon, um, and she's been called out for, uh, well, essentially inviting World War III as calling for the no-fly zone, and um, people are pointing out that it could trigger World War III, and she's being massively reckless. And uh, one of her own MPs, the excellent Alex Neal, one of the finest people in the SNP uh, uh, political system, uh, very much on the outside now because he's uh, actually old school and he's got the interests of his people at heart, um, 
is uh, tweeting that even considering a no-fly zone is extremely dangerous and risks World War Three. So since that's what uh, Nicola's doing, um, it might be interesting just to have a look at a piece of video to see just how bad our leaders are. Does the increasing death toll make the case for the West impose a, a no-fly zone as President Zelensky <coughs> was asking for yesterday again? I think the West has to keep its mind open to every way in which Ukraine can be helped. Uh, so I think getting uh, whatever military support and uh, military equipment that Ukraine needs it has to be a priority and I would hope that we will see uh, a solution found. We've got Poland wanting to provide fighter jets. Uh, the US obviously sceptical about the plan they've put forward. Um, I hope we will see a resolution to that so that that kind of assistance can be provided. Uh, I understand and you know, I, I share the, the concerns about a direct military confrontation between mm -hmm. Russia and NATO that a no-fly zone may uh, lead to. Uh, so I understand that. Nobody wants to see an escalation of that nature. But on the other hand, Putin is not acting in any way rationally or, or defensively. And uh, you know we have a situation right now where perhaps the only thing nuclear weapons are deterring is the ability to properly and directly help Ukraine. Um, so all of these things uh, must be considered on a daily basis right now because we cannot, the world cannot stand by and watch Ukraine's independence and sovereignty be extinguished. That would be morally wrong from Ukraine's perspective, but the implications of that for the rest of us in terms of the values we hold dear, it would be severe too. Uh, quite a few things to unpack there. I'll try and make it very quick. Uh, so. She's wrong when she says that a no-fly zone may lead to conflict with the Russians. It would, absolutely would. And then she says, well, but we might have to do that anyway because basically Putin's a madman. Um, this is obviously shows a, a massive lack of judgment on her, her part. She then goes on to prove that she, she's got relativity in her morals because she talked about a moral case, but only from the perspective of the Ukraine or the perspective of, of the West. So all, all morals are relative. And she then goes on to have a pop at nuclear weapons because the nuclear weapons that the Russians hold are deterring the West from bombing Russian troops. So that would be an effective deterrent. But that's that's not what she believes. She's trying to say that somehow that the that, that because we have nuclear weapons, that this is stopping us from helping the Ukrainians, which is of course utterly utterly uh, wrong-headed and confused. But there's a long history of wrong-headed and confused thinking on nuclear weapons in the SNP, exposed back in 2015 uh, by Alex Neal. And we have a clip of that too. Okay. Nicola Sturgeon has said, you know, I think she said it again last night in the debate, if not the one before, they're all kind of merging into one at the moment. She said that we should lead by example, uh, by unilaterally scrapping Trident. That's what she said. So which countries do you think would follow our example? Well, I think the principle that Nicola did was absolutely right. You know, we can't uh, say we want to remove nuclear weapons and then keep hold of our own. That simply no. doesn't so, wash. So which, country Listen, would, which other countries would follow our example? Well, Andrew, if uh, we don't pose a threat to other people, then there's less of a requirement for other people to want nuclear weapons. So it's give me an example, then, of which country for... would follow our example. If we scrap our deterrent, well, which country would follow our example? 
Well, we'd have to see. That's, I'm talking about the principle. Yes. I'm not talking about parliamentary tactics. It's a principle position your party has. So let's look at the principle. Do you think, for example, that Russia would follow our example? It's just increased its defense spending by 50%, including an extra 33% for its nuclear arsenal. Do you think Russia would follow our example? Well, you're arguing that Russia is a threat and they're going to bomb the UK. No, well, I'm trying to find out really if we safe? get rid of our nukes, who would get rid of theirs? If not Russia, do you think China is just going into a massive new investment in new nuclear submarines and mobile nuclear missiles? Would China follow our example? Well, I would hope that countries around the world would feel rather less threatened because no one would be pointing or threatening to point nuclear weapons at them. That's the principle of this. You can't argue for less nuclear weapons, Andrew. I then hypocritically keep... What's the UKIP position on this? Uh, well, interestingly, I can think of a country that gave up national, effective national mm. control on nuclear weapons. It's called the Ukraine. And I don't think that will, in return for fairly vague assurances, I don't think historians will come to regard that as the most sensible of decisions. In fact, it was a disaster. So, of course, we should have our independent nuclear deterrent. And what's more, UKIP is the one party that will commit to 2% of uh, GDP being spent on defence. Back in 2015, when UKIP were on uh, uh, the, the national stage, and now obviously there's much more to the, the Ukraine giving up an independent nuclear deterrent, because they never really had one. It was operated by a central Soviet system, and it was by no means clear that they would ever have, have been a country uh, with nuclear weapons. So it's not, quite a, it's not quite how it was portrayed there. But it does show the incoherence of the SNP position on nuclear deterrence, and particularly Nikola's position, and the idea that somehow the, the Ukrainian position bolsters their um, unilateral disarmament uh, stance is fanciful. Yes. Okay, David, thank you for that. Well, let's just pop back to October 2020 to remind ourselves that, of course, that the Ukrainian president, his wife, were entertained in the throne room. So this is the gleaming. Uh, picture from the mail back to business. Kate Middleton is elegant in a blue belted dress as she joins Prince William to welcome Ukraine's former comedian president. I think that should read comedian president and his wife to Buckingham Palace in their first audience since uh, lockdown. So there they are in very, very wealthy surroundings. Of course, this was tweeted out here uh, by Kensington Royal. So this is out from the palace. And there they are sitting and chatting. Um, no worries about COVID at all there, Mike. Uh, but of course, the label was that the couples did not wear masks, but observed social distancing and appeared in good spirits during the meeting. The first royal events take place at Buckingham Palace since March. So no worries about far-right extremist groups in, uh, in Ukraine there. No difficult questions about Azov battalions or Nazi insignia. This was just uh, welcoming the comedian into the palace. Um, I couldn't resist this photograph because uh, I think I could hear what was being said. So uh, from William, who cares about a few Nazis? Just keep, just keep to Schwab's World Economic Forum conflict and migration agenda and soon you'll be enjoying a guilt palace like this. That was clearly coming uh, from him. And uh, the response was uh, from Zelensky's uh, wife. He's right. Didn't I do well with the Russians killing babies? Mind you, we couldn't have managed the propaganda with the help of, without the help of BBC media action. So um, we're laughing at some very serious things here. But 
Uh, let's pull this narrative apart a little bit more and let's have a look about have a look at how Klaus Schwab um, welcomed uh, Zelensky to Davos. Mr. President, it's a pleasure to welcome you for the first time here at the annual meeting in Davos. Last April, you won the presidential elections in Ukraine in a staggering, with a staggering majority of 73%. I think this is a dream for any politician to have such a majority. Much emphasis and hope has been put into your government's ability to reform the Ukraine from within. You have let out your extensive ambitions to remake Ukraine into a dynamic market economy, free of corruption. At the same time, the Ukraine is faced with daunting challenges. And as a president, you have already had to deal with uh, the political reality in your first months of office. We are now very eager to hear from you how you see the future of Ukraine. Welcome very much, Mr. President. Hello, everybody. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be here for the first time. Um, I'm the president of Ukraine, so I'll speak Ukrainian. Dear Mr. Chairman, Professor Schwab, dear all, for me it's extremely really pleasant to be here at the 50th session of the World Economic Forum. And using this opportunity, I would like to note the projects of the Forum for Ukraine, and namely scenarios of the future for Ukraine, Geneva Initiative for Ukraine, the new economic vision for Ukraine, and I thank you for what has already been done, and I count on the further fruitful cooperation. The topics which are debated here in Davos always focus on the state of the modern world and elucidate the challenges facing humanity, and this year Forum united the leaders to discuss extremely important topic, the cohesive and sustainable world. Well, uh, you know, to my mind, uh, frankly spe speaking, Ukraine has what to say in this regard. What is the biggest threat to cohesive and sustainable world today? And this is security issue. Well, security for an individual as well as for many countries and all nations. The uh, present day world is changing with reactive speed, which transferred us into a new epoch, the epoch of new normality. What yesterday seemed fantastic. So security is the big issue. Um, Schwab is the kingmaker in this circumstance. So. Here is the comedian president. He's fated on the uh, the big international World Economic Forum stage, and we're entering new reality. So I think they knew perfectly well what the agenda was that was going to come in Ukraine. And of course, it doesn't matter those uh, right wing, the Nazi connections, those are all forgotten because Ukrainian right wing Nazis, they're good. Um, but of course, if they were anywhere else, we mustn't talk about them. So pretty, pretty interesting to watch that. Let's ask the question, who is Schwab and what is his agenda? Why is that man so powerful? Uh, David, a little while ago, you showed a video clip of um, a, um, a parliamentarian speaking out in Canada asking how Schwab could have influenced people within their parliament. And of course, uh, that person was immediately cut down by the Canadian equivalent, the speaker and uh, they didn't want to talk about Schwab's influence. 
They did not, uh, but of course Swab does. Swab wanted to talk about how many, in fact, it was a majority of the Canadian cabinet uh, were part of, uh, come through his uh, Young Leaders programme. So he was, he was very enthusiastic about his influence in Canada, even though the Canadian people uh, didn't get to learn anything in the parliament about how much that influence had, in fact, uh, penetrated. Yeah, thank you for that. Uh, well, of course, it's all changed between uh, Davos and the World Economic Forum and Putin. Politico here with the headline, Davos freezes out Putin and Russian oligarchs. And the statement from their spokesperson, Amanda Russo, was we're not engaging with any sanctioned individual and have frozen all relations with Russian, quote, entities. So Putin is clearly not playing a game that meets uh, Schwab's approval at the moment. So, of course, he's got to be taken out. He's got to be replaced, deposed uh, and or brought to uh, The Hague for war crimes. But what better way to get the war crimes going than the killing babies? I think this is a very old trick. It goes back to certainly the First World War. Uh, but of course, who is at the moment pushing this out? Uh, well, it's Elena Zelenska, um, the uh, president's wife, who is very much pushing out the truth that Russians are killing kids. I've taken this from a rather strange uh, website called Care Cleaning. This was passed through to me. The reports appear accurate. Uh, you can see other quotes in uh, the independent newspapers in UK, but this is the theme of what she's saying. I appeal to all the unbiased media in the world, tell this terrible truth. Russian invaders are killing Ukrainian children. Show these photos to Russian women. Your husband's brother's compatriots are killing Ukrainian children. Let them know that they're personally responsible for the death of every Ukrainian child because they gave their tacit consent to these crimes. Um, and then talking about the deaths, this figure might be increasing this very moment due to the shelling of our peaceful cities. When people in Russia say their troops are not hurting the civilian population, show them these pictures, show them the faces of these children who weren't even given a chance to grow up. How many more children must die to convince Russian troops to stop firing and allow humanitarian corridors? So obviously this would have been the message, Mike, that went straight into Prince William and Kate in the palace. Um, but when it comes down to, to understanding what's really happening on the ground, it gets difficult. This was uh, included in the report by Care Cleaning. The 18-month-old 18, 18 Kirill Yatsko was photographed by Associated Press as his parents frantically carried the toddler into a hospital in the southern Ukrainian city of Mariupol. So I found this fascinating that a cameraman is there, the other side of the door, as they run in. And I'm fascinated by the look of the man in the red suit in the background, who's got a sort of puzzled look on his face. You, you need to expand the image to see it. So I'm going to take this at face value, tragic picture. But why is it that we're getting so little accurate reports out? And this was a follow-up picture. I found this very distressing because if this couple have just lost a child, why would somebody be pointing a camera through into the room where they were grieving? I don't think this is good journalism. To me, it seems to have an element that it's staged very carefully, but we have to be so careful now because we can't tell what's happening, despite all of that good training by BBC Media Action. Uh, but if we go back to the president himself, we need to be looking at this uh, media company, Kavartal 95. You can find this online. You can look at the background. 
Here's a quote from the Ukrainian president, uh, Ambishab Objective, um, the co-founder and creative producer of Dvartel 95 says, um, is to make a world a better place, a kinder and more joyful place with help of those tools that we have, that is humor and creativity. We're moving towards this goal, trying to conquer the whole world, of course. I found that a very interesting expression. Um, we can see lots of people in black clothing, but not to worry because these people are just simply trying to get the comedy and the cartoons out to the Ukrainians. Uh, but what's coming? Well, of course, it's happened because now the UK and Channel 4 in particular is doing a documentary uh, charting President Zelensky's journey from, quote, comedian to Ukrainian leader. Uh, first one was out on Sunday, but what have we got? the making of an actor on the World Economic Forum stage. So I think this is pretty uh, blatant that it's propaganda that's making this man and everybody in the West and UK is to believe it. And just for you, David, I did pick up on Nicola Sturgeon. Uh, this is the Scotsman here originally reporting that she was happy uh, to give Syrian refugees a home. Certainly she was looking very relaxed and happy as a young lady in that home. Uh, she's now looking a little bit more severe, but of course she's happy to take in Ukrainian refugees, presumably, if she's going to get her 30 quid, 350 quid, quid a month. A month, yes. yes. Yeah, okay. Well, let's move on. Uh, if you like what the UK column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to community.ukcolumn.org and there are options to help us out there. Uh, share material on various platforms if you can. Uh, or if you would like to help us uh, via the UK Column shop, then it's shop.ukcolumn.org for that. Uh, now, David, uh, a few minutes ago, you talked, you mentioned shipbuilding and passing. Uh, so uh, Britain has a new shipbuilding strategy. Yeah, so we're going to go to the Clyde here. Um, and um, we have here uh, an old ship being, being renovated. We'll start there. Uh, this is the uh, TS Queen Mary, Queen Mary um, built in Dumbarton in 1933, Britain's finest pleasure steamer. It was going to be a static museum, but apparently they're going to put the engines back in, get her, get her sailing again. So that's an, an ongoing restoration uh, project. Is that, is that, uh, to, make, the is that was... to make up for the fact that the Type 45 destroyers can't get out of port? <laughs> Let's hope not. Uh, let's hope we've got something a wee bit more robust than uh, than the Queen Mary here uh, to uh, repel Russian submarines. Um, we've got, we do have things more robust. What we've got is uh, this ship here. This is HMS Glasgow, uh, Type Twenty Six frigate. Um, it seems to be an excellent ship. Not enough of them though. Uh, the, the the numbers being made is much less than the Type Twenty Three that it replaces. And this is rather my issue. There's been much talk this week uh, about uh, how wonderful the new, the fresh UK shipbuilding strategy is going to be. But the problem is, it's not that fresh. Uh, what we've got here is, is an admission that um, it's in fact the, the strategy that was outlined in, in 2017 and it's just been moderately uh, spruced up. And the GMB union are pointing out the government's uh, scheme doesn't actually guarantee the ship's going to be built in Britain. In fact, it's going to be looked at on a case-by-case -case basis. So they could be, still be built abroad. So that's a bit disappointing. Um, and um, it, but, it, but it does, Defence News here does comment that uh, BAE Systems 
uh, have been exporting ships to Australia, Canada, uh, with the Type 26 uh, frigate and uh, the Type 31 frigates being selected by Poland and Indonesia. So there is success in the British shipbuilding industry. But my point is it's not really been generated by government strategy, despite the spin. Uh, you see here more from, from Sky News, um, uh, who report the UK is to inject 4 billion, but remember this has already been announced, uh, to deliver 150 naval and civil vessels. That's a large number, but a lot of these are little little ships that, that uh, operate essentially inside the port confines. So don't be fooled by the numbers. Um, uh, but we've got, it's okay because we've got uh, Boris here looking very, uh, I'm not sure what the word is, um, uh, round, I think, uh, with his high-vis on, uh, standing on a ship. And he said the, the investment will galvanise shipyards. I, he really shouldn't use technical words because he gets them wrong the whole time. And it's just a bit cringeworthy. Ships are not galvanised and I really wish he wouldn't do that. Um, and he said this will ensure the UK is rightly seen as a shipbuilding power across the world. Standard issue, Boris Johnson um, uh, PR. But of course, there's nothing really there to substantiate or back that up. And that's the problem. Uh, we can build wonderful things. Here's the aircraft carrier um, uh, Queen Elizabeth, uh, built in Scotland and uh, coming back up the Clyde tomorrow. So anyone who's on the Clyde who wants to see it, uh, they can see it. But if your sat-nav doesn't work, uh, that's why, because um, this, all the uh, satellite navigation systems have been um, suppressed as the ship sails by. Is this in um, case, uh, is this in case uh, Vladimir wants to drop something on it? Uh, I, 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 I imagine it stops drones and things getting too close. Yes, exactly what risk they're protecting it from, I don't know. But the, uh, the satellite navigation systems are being temporarily suppressed in the area where the ship passes by. Okay. Um, so that's an example of success. We go to the example of failure here. We've got um, the... Uh, ferries which are desperately needed in Scotland are going to be built in Turkey. Turkish shipyard is now the preferred bidder. Uh, and uh, we've got uh, £105 million of our taxpayers' money uh, for absolutely essential uh, lifeline uh, boats to, uh, to, to serve the islands on Scotland's west coast goes to Turkey because the state-owned yard, owned and operated by the SNP government, is, of course, uh, completely unable to even bid for them, such as is the trouble at that particular yard. Uh, and we have here a little video that, that outlines the nature of the, the problems on the islands that are caused by the failing, uh, increasingly old and broken down Calmark ferry fleet um, that cannot be replaced from British yards. Right, you just have to step foot onto this island and within minutes everyone you meet has a tale to tell when it comes to these ferries and the what appears to be deteriorating situation. But there's an accusation, as you mentioned, that Calmac is failing to seize those opportunities when the weather is a bit calmer to carry forward with those sailings. That is a claim flatly denied by Calmac, but all of this is beginning to take a toll on these fragile communities. Arriving on Barra, this is a community feeling isolated like never before. We have a van uh, that comes from Glasgow. Um, it travels up to Oban and if the ferry doesn't run, it's left in Oban, sometimes for a couple of days. 
the fruit and veg can go off, it has to be chucked. The business won't be here in, in, in years to come if they carry on the way they are. There's got to be huge changes and they've got to be done ASAP, not in a year's time. There's a strength of feeling among some here on the island that there's a lack of urgency from the Scottish Government to sort these issues out and sort them out right now. Although there is investment to the tune of around £600 million going forward and there are new ferries coming on stream being built down in Inverclyde, they are years late and hugely over budget. These were questions we were hoping to put to the new Transport Minister, Jenny Gilruth. But she was unavailable on Friday, Monday, Tuesday or today to answer any concerns from the local community here. So what we've had is we had a, we had a Scottish Yard building ferries and there was lots of changes from the government specification. There was a dispute to the government forced the yard into liquidation, uh, bought it cheap, nationalised it on the cheap, a good wheeze if you're a socialist the way Nicola Sturgeon is. Uh, and then since then, no ferries have been produced. Uh, work has gone slower and slower with more and more problems. And uh, we're unable to fulfill contracts for the very specialist Scottish ferries that are necessary uh, from, any, from any British yard, which is a tremendous shame. And of course, uh, the, the jobs and expertise and the skills are going to Turkey, uh, not Scotland or any English yard. Uh, the ferries themselves have to be really designed very much for the routes uh, they serve because they operate in a lot of shallow water and very shallow harbours, uh, awkward harbour geometries. So they're very unique boats uh, and a lot are needed. So there was an opportunity to build up a native shipbuilding industry again. That opportunity sadly has been missed by the SNP government. Um, and uh, I have to say that it would appear that their inability to grasp what commerce and success looks like uh, and, and the, the, the belief in the state as a solution to all problems uh, doesn't really leave uh, Scottish enterprise anywhere to go. Mm. Uh, David, I'd just come back on that and say I, I don't think they've missed anything. I think the policy is deliberate. It's to destroy the nation state from the inside. They don't want Scotland producing anything. Uh, we are to be parked on the edge of, of Europe. And uh, what are we going to be for? Holidays and... Uh, a little bit of agriculture. The policy is too widespread that everything is destroyed. The NHS is destroyed, uh, aircraft industry, shipbuilding, you name it, it's pulled apart and wrecked, steel. So I'm gonna suggest that it's a deliberate policy. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, okay, over the last uh, number of months, we've been talking about digital identities because of course that was a, a core uh, part of the uh, COVID uh, agenda and uh, well, Britain has decided to uh, pursue this uh, by uh, issuing trustworthy digital identities. Uh, it's all going to be trustworthy. We don't have to worry about anything. Lots of trust to be had here. So people will be able to easily and quickly prove their identity using digital methods instead of having to rely on traditional physical documents. Um, and uh, this follows a public cons consultation, apparently. Uh, and the government has announced that it will introduce legislation to make digital identities as trusted and secure as official documents such as passports and driving licenses. So they're going to hand this over to third party uh, co corporations, as we mentioned before. Uh, so digital identities, they say, which are a, form, a virtual form of ID, reduce the time, effort and expense that sharing physical documents can take uh, when people need to provide a legal proof of who they are, for example, when buying a home 
or starting a new job. And they can also help tackle fraud, which hit record highs with an estimated 5 million cases in the year ending September 2021 by reducing the amount of personal data shared online and making it harder for fraudsters to obtain and use stolen identities. So uh, we'll just uh, briefly remind you what this, what they were saying about this, that uh, uh, they were going to implement a digital management uh, policy, which explains how they create, obtain, disclose, protect, and delete data, uh, that following industry standards and best practice for information security and encryption would be part and parcel of this, uh, and also telling uh, us, the users, if any changes, for example, an update to their address had been made to their digital identity. But now they've announced uh, the following. Now they're saying that uh, organizations that want to take part in providing these digital identity services will need to gain a new trust mark uh, to show that they can handle people's identity data in a safe and consistent way. So that should make us feel uh, very uh, fulfilled and relaxed. Uh, and a new Office for Digital Identities and Attributes uh, will be established to oversee strong security and privacy standards for digital IDs. Does that title, Office for Digital Identities and Attributes, does that make you feel uh, well, it's a made, bit fuzzy, Brian? It's made me laugh, Mike, because every time they set up a new uh, office or a new department as a way of placating people that they're going to be safer when the opposite is true. These people are building a very dangerous re regime. Now, so let's uh, bring the lovely Julia Lopez on screen, who is the data minister. She said, uh, the government is committed to unlocking the power of data to benefit people across the UK. Well, I'm not sure which people she's talking about, but anyway, it's going to benefit lots of people. Uh, the legislation we're proposing will ensure that there are trusted and secure ways for people and organizations to use digital identities should they choose to. So apparently at this stage, it's still uh, optional. But of course, it wasn't going to be optional with respect to vaccination or COVID status, was it? Um, so uh, uh, let's uh, just remind ourselves what they were talking about. They're talking about this idea of attributes. So your attribute might be your age or your address uh, or your employment status and these kinds of things. Um, and uh, they also said that uh, you could be disclosing details from the government, such as your legal name, date of birth, right to reside, work or study, as well as details from other organizations, such as your professional qualifications or employment history. And as the point we made before is that there's a whole raft of uh, uh, companies uh, getting in line to, to join this. Uh, and really the point here is this provides uh, all kinds, you know, at whatever way, whatever way they make this, supposedly private or secure. This is going to provide all kinds of lovely metadata to the trusted organization and to the trusted data. So in other words, this is a sur surveillance regime, the likes of which we've never seen. Uh, but if we can say hello to Kitty Joe and welcome you to the program, Kitty Joe. Uh, this, in fact, uh, is also something which is not just restricted to the United Kingdom. Not at all, no. The, the known traveler digital identity, or KTDI, is a world economic forum initiative that brings together a global consortium of individuals, governments, authorities, and the travel industry to enhance security and world travel. And we'll take a look in a minute at exactly who it involves. And I can tell you, uh, you won't be surprised. Um, the first global collaboration of its kind, KTDI, enables more secure and seamless travel that benefits both travelers and the travel industry. The KTDI enables consortium partners to access variable claims of a traveler's identity data so that they can access their credibility, optimize passengers' processing, and reduce risk. The KTDI 
allows individuals to manage their own profile and collect digital atti uh, sorry, attestations of their personal data, deciding what data to share and when. So it sounds like you're in control, but wait, the more attestations a traveller accumulates and shares, the better consortium partners, governments and other parties can provide a smooth and safe travel experience. So really what they mean is to actually to be able to travel without any hassle, you're better off sharing everything. Um, on the home page on, on the website, there is a short video actually. And in the video, um, they say that in tw by 2030, there is again that date that the WEF mentioned constantly. It's so weird how everything is going to happen in 2030. It's as if they have some sort of plan or something. Um, but they say that by 2030, international arrivals are expected to grow by 50%. And so travelers will need seamless ways to cross borders. I don't know about you, but I, I was quite happy with my paper ticket before the biggest false flag in history of mankind was ever played out. Air travel before 9-11 was no hassle. Um, the problem reaction solution of that event is plain to see. And this is simply a, a continuum of the solution to make travel safe and secure. It's all part of the agenda. It's, fr it's a frightening video um, showing exactly how they uh, will control your ability to travel. And you can imagine a, a Dolores Umbridge sort of character narrating the video. It's, it's pure evil underneath what is sugar-coated to be what seem like a wonderful thing. Um, so who is involved in this pilot? Well, the pilot group convened by the WEF consists of the governments of Canada and the Netherlands. Surprise, surprise. Air Canada, KLM, KLM Royal Dutch Airlines, Montreal Trudeau International Airport and Amsterdam Airport Schiphol. It is envisioned that the pilot project could, could include up to 10,000 passenger end-to-end -end trips facilitated by KTDI. The KTDI platform will in, be integrated with consortium partners systems and will be tested throughout 2019 with the global initiation testing in a contained live environment and completing the first end-to-end -end journey during the first quarter of 2020. I couldn't find any evidence of this actually happening yet. Um, and obviously they will be using biometrics and cryptography, of course, nothing to worry about at all. Um, I mean, some people, they don't really see that there's much difference between a real passport and the KTDI. Some airports already, for instance, um, record your fingerprints and scan your retina. This is true, but we have just seen in Canada, you know, we are taking, we're talking much more um, control than that. If you behave in any way, shape or form that the government doesn't approve of, you can have your assets frozen. Think about it, you, you will be completely controlled. And they use language, high risk and low risk. Does that mean that Tamara Litch would be a high risk for standing up to the tyrannical government in Canada? I think so. So that questions, um, anyone that questions and stands up to their government is, is going to be classified as high risk. Um, we have been warned of this enslavement many times by the likes of Aldous Huxley and George Orwell. And to see their predictions come into fruition is pretty scary. Um, there is a brilliant article uh, by the Alternative Column, funnily enough, um, they're called the Alternative Column. And uh, it reveals um, the revelations of Dr. Richard Day, an ever unveiling prophecy. Dr. Richard Day was one of the most accurate whistleblowers ever. 
a professor of paediatrics at Pittsburgh University and a future director at Planned Parenthood. He was recorded in 1969 describing topics including population control, the internet, computers, promotion of homosexuality, legislation of abortion, um, microchipping, cashless society, pornography, sex, individual security, education, religious, suppressing cancer cures, and much, much more. And, and you can hear the three hours uh, worth of tape recordings um, named the New World Order of Barbarians on the Alternative Colin website. There is a link that takes you straight to those uh, tape recordings, and they are chilling to listen to. Okay, thank you very much for that. Nye, yeah. did you have anything? Well, the only thing I wanted to say, Katie Joe, was that the significance of the World Economic Forum, people should be asking themselves, who, who is, what is the World Economic Forum? How did these people get legitimacy? Did anybody vote for them? Immensely powerful, controlling politicians worldwide, but nobody actually put them in power apart from themselves. So if people want to understand the drivers, a good place to start is the World Economic Forum. Um, okay, let's uh, move on to COVID then. And uh, well, the COVID inquiry terms of reference were released last week, uh, and there's a consultation going on around that. So the uh, COVID-19 inquiry has been set up to examine the UK's preparedness and response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, and to learn lessons for the future, says the British government. Uh, the pandemic has affected us all, they say, uh, and the inquiry is holding a public consultation to ensure that everybody uh, in the UK has the opportunity to give their views on how it should go about its work. So uh, what are the main terms of reference? Obviously, prepare, pandemic preparedness, uh, the public health response, uh, the response in, health and the, in the health and care sector, um, our economic response is the other one, and they say that you can take part in the public consultation uh, on this website. Uh, the consultation will close on the 7th of April, uh, 2022 at 23.59. Uh, or you can write to them. In fact, uh, there is a, a free post address, free post UK COVID-19 public inquiry. So let's just have a look at the inquiry personnel. Uh, so first of all, we've got uh, Baroness Heather Hallett. Uh, well, who's she? She is uh, going to be chair of the, the inquiry. Uh, she's responsible for making procedural decisions, hearing evidence, making findings and recommendations. Uh, she uh, ha acted as the coroner for the uh, uh, for the inquest of 56 uh, people who died in the uh, 2005 London bombings. She was chair of the uh, Iraq fatalities investigations. So clearly uh, a very uh, good person to be uh, taking on this particular inquiry, eh, Brian? Uh, then here's uh, Ben Connor. Uh, it gets better. Uh, the, he is responsible for the administration of the inquiry. This apparently involves supporting the chair uh, who makes the key decisions for the inquiry, and he's a civil, senior civil servant. So he is the main contact uh, between the inquiry and the cabinet office. Uh, and uh, he's from the Ministry of Justice, was previously, he's currently Department of Education. He was part of the Department of Education's pandemic response team. He spent two months leading the Department for Education's team embedded in the vaccine deployment program. Uh, providing school expertise when vaccine eligibility was extended to children. Uh, let's have a look at another one. Here is Martin Smith, uh, and uh, he is responsible for advising the chair, obtaining evidence, corresponding with core participants, and preparing for hearings. He's a solicitor and partner at uh, Field Fisher LLP and specializes in public law, regulation, inquests, and inquiries. He acted as solicitor to a number of important inquests, including the Hutton Inquiry, the inquiry into the death of Diana, Princess of Wales, 
uh, the 7-7 London bombings inquest, the Litvinenko inquiry, the inquest into the death of Don Sturgis, and the independent inquiry into child sexual abuse, ICSA. Uh, and uh, then finally, on this particular list, we have uh, Hugo Keith, uh, QC, and his role is to give independent legal advice to the ch chair, present the evidence, question the witnesses uh, that lead to the wider and lead the wider council team. Uh, so he is joint head of chambers at uh, Three Raymond Buildings. Uh, he was a member of the A panel of the of the Civil Treasury Council for eight years, so he was prosecuting uh, Treasury UK Treasury cases. Uh, he also presented or represented the royal household in the inquest into the death of Diana, Princess of Wales. Uh, and was appointed the leading counsel to the inquests into the London bombings of 7th of July 2005. He uh, subsequently appeared in the Levison inquiry, uh, in the Mark Duggan inquiry, in the Alexander Litvinenko inquiry, and the Westminster inquests. So there seems to be a common thread running through this, Brian, and that is certainly the uh, inquiry into the uh, Diana, uh, but also the uh, London bombings inquiries. Yeah. Uh, they seem to be pulling the same team out. Uh, so uh, Baroness Heather, Heather Hallett uh, produced a letter. Here it is. I want to introduce myself as chair of the uh, UK COVID-19 inquiry. The coronavirus pandemic has had an unprecedented impact on everyone in the United Kingdom. Many people have lost loved ones and suffered serious harm or hardship. Uh, and so it goes on. I'll le leave people to read this uh, at their leisure. Uh, and uh, it's signed by her at the bottom. Uh, but David, um, uh, just be interested very briefly uh, in your thoughts on uh, on that particular group of four. It's very interesting. I mean, it, it's very much the establishment and investigating the establishment. Uh, there is no outside voice. There's no critical voice. Uh, and it was particularly concerning to see that someone who'd been involved in the vaccine rollout is now investigating the effects of the vaccine rollout. So there's, it's, there's certainly conflicts of interest there. It's not very convincing that we're going to have openness and transparency. David, I'd just like to add that if we bring people's minds back to the extra child abuse inquiry, that inquiry under Baroness Alexis J., uh, refused to hear testimony from key witnesses about the abuse that they suffered. They were simply not allowed to give evidence. And other key individuals, including former police officers, were also effectively blocked in giving the full uh, quotient of, the, of their evidence. Uh, so if you're going to have an inquiry, but you're not going to hear key evidence, then clearly you're not seeking the truth. And Many people have commented on screen. We, I can see the comments coming in that, of course, this is how you set up a brush it under the carpet uh, uh, result. Indeed. So. But David, let's uh, talk about uh, uh, COVID some more and, and heart attacks and so on. Yes. So we've been following the statistics on all-cause mortality for well, well over a year now as the most reliable statistics and the ones that show what's really happening. So we've got a, a bit of video here from an Edward Dowd in America who's looking at the same thing from an American perspective and coming to some very striking conclusions. This is the CDC's own data um, that they aggregate into um, all ages. Uh, the bottom line is my uh, insurance industry expert, former sell-side Wall Street analyst, went into the CDC data we were looking for other things, but what we found was pretty shocking. He took the data and it, it took some time and effort. He did a lot of work, 
he broke it down by age and he created baselines for each age group to come up with excess mortality. And the money chart is really chart four, which shows that the millennial age group 25 to 44 experienced an 84% increase in excess mortality into the fall. It's the um, worst ever excess mortality, I think, in the history. Um, just to give you an idea, when you look at chart four, you see when mandates and boosters hit the acceleration into the fall, and then um, it reaccelerated into uh, the end of the year. The drop off in that data you see there is reporting issues. It takes time for millennial age uh, deaths to be reported because they're usually not hospital deaths. So um, that data is going to be updated and probably shows a continued uh, disturbing trend. So just to put some numbers on this, um, in the fall, uh, starting in the summer into the fall with the mandates and the boosters, um, there were 61,000 excess millennial deaths. Basically, millennials experienced a Vietnam War in, in the second half of 2021, okay? 58,000 people died in the Vietnam War, uh, U.S. Uh, troops. So this generation just experienced a Vietnam War. And I think this is the smoking gun that the vaccines are causing excess mortality in all age groups. And uh, it's no coincidence that uh, Michelle Walensky refuses to answer Senator Ron Johnson's letters. They're hiding. Fauci's gone. She's gone. They're hiding. So I'm going to put a, a word out there. Uh, and it's, it's a word that's old, but it needs to be reintroduced in the conversation. This is what we call democide, death by government. So the government, through the mandates, has killed people. So an 85% increase in all-cause mortality of what would normally be the healthiest part of your population and, and, and a total death toll from the United States of America equivalent to the 10 years of the Vietnam War. Uh, and that was in six months. So quite striking. Now, uh, we have here um, a couple of examples of at least suspicious deaths where I wonder if we'll be getting more investigations. Here we see uh, Scottish Commonwealth cyclist John Paul dies aged only 28. Um, a double European champion at junior level and world junior sprint champion 2011. So exceptionally fit. Um, a young athlete, and, and he has passed away very sadly. Uh, and we have other cases here. Nine Fort Bragg soldiers recently died of unknown causes. Now, some of these were car accidents, so it's still possible that it could be a heart attack at the wheel. We don't really know. Uh, but some cases are like uh, this one here, uh, where um, a paratrooper, again, extremely fit young man, is found dead at his home. Um, uh, found unresponsive uh, in his in his bed, uh, and at the moment we have no explanation as to why. Um, we go on to here. This is a this is a, a cartoon from the excellent uh, Bob's cartoons, and it's it's talking about the Ukraine and it's it's saying the the fog of war. And if you can see there, what the fog of war is obscuring, it's obscuring a sign uh, being held up that says "Vax harm." Uh, isn't that true? And uh, just to finish off on this section, um, we have here uh, the Catholic News Agency are reporting that Anthony Fauci, Chelsea Clinton uh, are both to speak at the Vatican Health Conference, uh, exploring the mind, body and soul. Uh, it's going to take part, uh, take place uh, virtually, of course.
and it will also feature the chief executives of uh, Moderna and Pfizer, uh, along with other celebrities, including the new age Deepak Chopra. Um, and uh, a comment here uh, from uh, Twitter, Ian Hayworth asks, was Satan unavailable? And of course, the answer to that is, uh, at the Vatican, Satan's always available. But thank you for asking, Ian. Uh, that was quite uh, well well timed. Yes. Okay. Well, look, we're we're absolutely out of time, uh, Kitty Joe. So we'll just do the 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 uh, fluoride section if we could, and uh, and then we'll have to leave it for today. But if you want to start off with a short video clip here. Um. That's Canada. Did you want me to talk about? Oh, sorry. Canada? Right. No. Sorry. No. Sorry. No. We're we're doing. Uh, we're... <laughs> Floyd or Canada? What would you like? Uh, yeah. Sorry. I'm I'm I'm, I'm losing my uh, my way here. Let's see. Where where was uh, fluoride? Was eighty four. So just uh, right. Okay. So so let's do this one, uh, Kitty Joe, and uh, and then we'll have to leave it. And as I always say, Mike, you, you will never see this flexibility available on the BBC <laughs> that we can adjust during the news. You pay billions of pounds for those BBC licences, but you can't get a, an online decision. Very good. OK. <laughs> yeah. So we had a UK column viewer emailed us a brilliant letter he'd sent to his local MP about his concern with the proposed intention to fluoridate 100% of the water nationwide. Um, he mentioned that a huge majority of people don't even know that this is even being considered and therefore have not been able to give their informed consent to being supplied with a medical uh, product. Uh, therefore, on a human rights basis, it ought to not be allowed to proceed. Um, he finished his letter by saying, I'm writing to you today, as I know that, that, that Lords listen to MPs and as my elected representative, I would like to contact your parties, um, like you to contact your parties members of the House of Lords on my behalf and ask them to vote through this amendment at the very least, or preferably to uphold our human rights and get rid of this section entirely. As you can imagine, the response was the usual generic pack of lies. This is the response that he received. Thank you for contacting me about water fluoridation schemes in England. I appreciate there are strongly held views on both sides of this issue. Fluoridation of water is the process of artificially adjusting the natural fluoride content of drinking water to tackle the incidence of tooth decay and reduce health inequalities. It is estimated that 5.8 million people in England receive fluoridated water. This means fluoride has been added to bring, up, bring it up to around one milligram of fluoride per litre of water, um, which is, is a level found to reduce tooth decay. It's not a natural harmless form of fluoride they are going to be adding to the water at all. And as I said last week, most children are overdosing on fluoride just through using toothpaste alone. Um, I forgot to mention last week as well that fluoride is actually highly toxic and poisonous to dogs as well. So um, I would, I, you know, if this goes ahead, I definitely would advise you don't feed that water to your to your furry friends. Um, carrying on, the safety and efficiency of fluoride has been under constant review since it was first proposed. Recent reviews of the scientific evidence published by authoritative bodies in England concur that fluoridated water confers significant dental health benefits. The view is supported by the British Dental Association, the Oral Health Foundation, the British Medical Association, and the World Health Organization. Has 
anybody got any trust in these organizations anymore at all. They are corrupt beyond belief. And interestingly, she doesn't mention the hundreds of organizations saying the exact opposite. Take the IAOMT, for example, the International Academy of Oral Medicine and Toxicology. They have a fantastic website that goes into great detail of the risks of fluoridation. Their final thoughts on fluoride exposure and human health risks are, Increased sources of fluoride exposure are accompanied by increased health, human health risks. Therefore, it has become a necessity to reduce and work toward eliminating avoidable sources of fluoride exposure, including water fluoridation, fluoride containing dental materials and other fluoridated products. So if we go back to the letter again, we can carry on looking on uh, uh, to see what Liz had to say. She, she carries on with, while tooth decay can be prevented or minimised by adherence to a healthy diet and by regular toothbrushing and engaging with dental services, its prevalence remains higher among the most disadvantaged. Regular toothbrushing and attendance at the dentist are also less prevalent in poorer or mis more disadvantaged groups. Again, let's not teach people how to take responsibility for their health their oral health included. Let's not help those struggling to afford a healthy diet achieve one. Let's just medicate everyone. Let's just medicate everyone and yeah, forget I, about all of that. But aside from that, Kitty Joe, there's no availability of NHS dentists anymore. So, so you no. know, the poorest communities need the NHS support and it's not there for them. And it's not there. No, exactly. So what are they to do? They're, they're, to, they're to have um, fluoride and poison given to them instead. Um, carrying on with her letter, in September 2021, the four UK chief medical officers published an independent report citing strong scientific evidence in support of water fluoridation schemes as an effective public health intervention. It found no credible scientific evidence that the levels of fluoride used in English schemes are harmful to health. It's funny, isn't it, that all the unquestioning evidence out there that proves fluoride is highly toxic and dangerous to humans, that all four chief medical officers are in full support of water fluoridation. I mentioned fluorosis last week, um, and here is what the IMT have to say about it. Um, exposure to excess fluoride can result in dental fluorosis, a condition in which teeth enamel becomes irreversibly damaged. Additionally, the teeth become permanently discoloured, displaying a white or brown mottling pattern and forming brittle teeth that break and stain easily. Dental fluorosis is recognised as the first visible sign of fluoride toxicity. It is likewise a warning signal to the human health risks associated with fluoride exposure. According to 2010 data from the Centre for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, 23% of Americans aged 6 to 49 and 41% of children aged 12 to 15 exhibit fluorosis to some degree. An assessment of the CDC's future uh, data further demonstrates that 58% of children aged 6 to 9 have fluorosis. So how did she finish the letter? Well, she finished it with by saying, as you know, the health and care bill will give powers to the health secretary to directly introduce, vary or terminate water fluoridation schemes across England. This responsibility currently lies with local authorities who have reported difficulties with the current process. Well, that's excellent news, isn't it? Let's hope that the difficulties continue. Um, the government said consultation with local populations will take place before any new fluoridation schemes are introduced. So it does sound like there will be, they will be consulting the local people. So we must keep an eye out 
for this and inform everyone we know of the dangers so that we can get as many people to contest this scheme as possible. Um, she finishes with, thank you once again for contacting me about this issue. I will follow developments in this area closely. Yours sincerely, Liz. Um, I have written to my MP a number of times, my local MP, and uh, many of the people in my community have written to them as well. And it does feel like you're not getting anywhere and you're not making a difference, but it is important that we do keep um, sharing our voices and our opinions with them. Um, they were elected to be ours. Yeah. Teddy, Teddy Joe, I'll just respond to that. I think you're absolutely right in saying that people need to not only communicate with their MPs, they've got to stay on the case. And of course, the thing with Liz Twist there, she's doing what all the MPs do at the moment. She is not replying herself. She's not giving uh, a reply that she's considered in her own mind. She's simply gone to central office, got the official line, which has been sent to her probably as a draft. And then she sends that back out. And people must not accept this. She effectively doesn't answer the question in a coherent way. And uh, the person who took her on in the first place has got to absolutely challenge that. This is, where are our MPs? Where are they at the moment? Well, they're in Westminster when we have um, the Ukrainian president spieling his, his stuff. But when it's to do with the protection of people in UK, we, we don't see our MPs. So stay on their cases. We're at the end, I think. Yeah. Okay. Well, we just uh, add, we know, uh, Katie Joe, you were going to, uh, talk about Canada. So we're going to say to our audience from uh, Canada and the US, we are we are watching what's going on. Apologies that we haven't managed to get that into the news today, but we will follow up on what's happening in Canada and report accordingly. But we're going to have to leave it there for today. So thank you everybody for joining us. And a very big thank you to people who are now coming on board and subscribing to the UK column. Uh, because if you like what we do, we need your financial support to make sure we can protect ourselves in the future. I think David had a quick final comment. Could, could we just pick the last two slides just to finish on a high note here? Okay. If, if, if that's possible. This is uh, from the Babylon Bee, uh, and it's getting back to the situation in uh, Russia, and they need to, to uh, boycott all things Russian. Uh, and they report that uh, Hillary, Hillary Clinton, vows to stop importing dossiers from Russia. And they carry on to give some detail. Beloved feminist icon in 2024, presidential hopeful Hillary Clinton has announced she'll be joining efforts to halt Russian aggression. Starting this week, she's promised to stop importing dossiers from Russia. Quote, for a long time, I've relied on Russian intelligence as a prime source for phony dirt on my political opponents, said Clinton, as she adjusted the scope on her high-powered sniper rifle. Starting today, I will refuse to import my disinformation uh, or even my hitmen from Russia. Uh, and that's it. That is uh, unless it's absolutely necessary. Sources in Russia say this will cost, cost the Russian economy over 3,000 jobs, which were previously filled with people working full-time writing phony dossiers for Hillary Clinton. In a statement, President Putin said... He was sad to see this close, long-time relationship with Clinton going south, and he thought the big red reset button meant something to you, he said. For the time being, the Clintons have committed to buying their disinformation only from domestic sources like the Washington Post. Bill Clinton also joined the fight, promising to stop importing underage women from Russia. Okay.
Well, there we go. Good to end on some uh, humour. We'll leave it there. Thanks to everybody for joining us today. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.